when I walk into a space, when I, you know, living in this country, especially in a, in a world that is not set up for people like myself to to thrive, um, it becomes like a daily uh, daily challenge. Andrea Marquez, and this is Latinx East. With me today is Adonias Arevalo, a DACA recipient from El Salvador who grew up in Houston, Texas. So a little summary on Adonias. He's worked with United We Dream as a national organizer and campaign coordinator. He moved to Arizona where he was, he has worked for organizations like the Arizona Dream Act Coalition, United Way, and was selected as one of the 10 community leaders by Arizona University to contribute to the improvement of community engagement in the university and among its students. He has represented Arizona in Miss Gay America 2020 and uses the art of drag to organize his community to go out and vote. He is currently the state director for Poder Latinx, where he is working on mobilizing voters and getting them out to the polls this November 3rd. And that's just to name a few things because I couldn't decide. It's I was so impressed and so overwhelmed by all of the things you've been doing, Adonias, and you are a force to be reckoned with and an inspiration to many. So thank you for being with us on Latinx today. Thank you for having me. Muchas gracias. Um, and I'm really excited. I didn't even know where to start because there's so I was like thinking, okay, I can ask this and this and this, but let's just kind of start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do. So I am originally from El Salvador, um, Central America. I grew up in Houston, Texas. I moved to Houston when I was uh, 13. Um, you know, like many, you know, people from my country, we left El Salvador because of gun violence. Uh, I lost my dad uh, to the violence, you know, uh, when I was 11. So that kind of pushed my family and myself to leave the country. So, um, you know, for me growing up uh, undocumented and also being queer, um, I think that my life was always around, you know, the fear of like deportation, accessing school and navigating, right, uh, the life of an undocumented queer person in this country. Um, and it wasn't until when I was 18, so that was probably 11 years ago that I, I felt like I found my voice after I graduated from high school to uh, take action and to start organizing in 2009. And that's kind of like what brought me to, to do everything I've done. So why specifically have you chosen to do this? Because I mean, as, as someone who's involved in their community, you can choose to be involved in many, many ways. Why did you choose specifically to be, be, be a voice in the way that you are now? Uh, I think there's three reasons. One, um, growing up, especially in a very conservative home, I felt like I never had someone to look up to um, that I could relate. Um, and I always want to be, especially now as, more as an adult, when I talk to like families, like, like I, uh, I see myself in a lot of kids sometimes that oftentimes we didn't have that representation in any space. Um, and then the second part is because organizing and this work is really personal. Um, my job is not, you know, a nine to five job at 5 p.m. Everything, you know, it's over. Like if something happens with DACA, so DACA recipient, like something happened with TPS yesterday, my family has TPS, like everything that's going on, you know, it affects me on a daily basis, uh, whether it's on immigration, on health, on education, specifically on immigration, being, you know, having a mixed status family. It's something that 
it affects my family. So whether I want to use my organizing hat or my job hat, um, it still affects me. It's just a reality that I have to like confront on a daily basis. And I feel like with the years, like it's almost really hard to walk away from. How can you share a little more about the ways that being from a mixed status household affects your everyday life? Yeah, you know, so for me, um, one of the things, like, when I think of, like, what what's happening, I think of my mom. She's undocumented. Uh, she's 56 years old, came to this country 18 years ago. Uh, she's still without a status. Um, and I think of, of the work that she does every day, you know, trying to survive with my stepdad and myself trying to support it. So when I think of my work, I think of my mom, who been here for a really long time, who at any time, you know, with this administration, and she can be in danger of deportation to a country that has, you know, been, you know, the, one of the most dangerous countries in the world. Um, for me, even as a DACA recipient, like it has been, especially the past three years, like an emotional limbo of like planning your life almost say, every 18 months um, without knowing what is going to happen. Um, and also having to know that like many countries like mine and El Salvador, uh, being queer, being LGBTQ, um, it's, it's criminalized. So, and many of like my trans brothers and sisters who flew violence from there have, have died, have, you know, have been hurt, you know, in a really bad way. So I think that fear always exists. Um, and also I have families and nephews who have TPS as well. So like, it's almost like a really connection of like everything that's going on. How do you, um, you're mentioning that you're part of the LGBTQ plus community and so as a Latino, I've had conversations about this on other episodes of the podcast. Um, and it's one already difficult and um, quite a journey to be already part of the LGBTQ plus community. And it's like an added thing to be that and Latino at the same time. And then, as you say, coming from El Salvador, where, as you say, it's criminalized to be part of the community. How were you able to reconcile these things to have to use it as as a powerful tool to incite others to to mobilize others to want to be involved in their community civically here in the United States, obviously? Yeah, well, you know, for me, I I think that um, growing up, you know, I never felt like I had to come out. Like for me, it was always an experience of like, you know, when it was more of an affirmation. Mm. And, you know, growing up in Latino household, you know, where machismo is very predominant, where um, Christianity or Catholicism or religion or faith, it's really strong. Um, it is difficult. And I mean, I'm not gonna lie that it has created like a lot of moments in my life where I had to, you know, navigate things by myself because of the lack of support that exists, you know, in our communities and in our families. Um, most importantly for me has always been an affirmation of being who I am. I think that when I walk into a space, when I, you know, living in this country, especially in a, in a world that is not set up for people like myself to, to thrive, um, it becomes like a daily, uh, daily challenge. And, and we've seen, especially policy-wise, how we have been impacted. We've seen, um, 
the the murderers, right, of our trans brothers and sisters. We've seen how on a daily basis, uh, our, even in this country, um, we're still fighting for basic human rights. Um, so when I think of like the work that I do, I think of myself when I was like eight or nine or 10, where, you know, having to hide away from like my real authentic self. And now as an adult, as I was sharing earlier, I spent a lot of time with moms, with family members, um, and in creating spaces to where parents can have these difficult conversations with their children. I think it's quite powerful. And the reason I talk about this a lot is because uh, when you're able to use something that is um, controversial, I guess the word would be, or not, not a lot of people are, so there's polarizations, one side thinks one thing and everything's politicized nowadays. Um, the fact that you've been able to use that in an active way and that you use it as a strength to me is very inspiring. And that's why I, I love talking about that. And one of the reasons I couldn't like decide what I wanted to focus on when speaking to you. And right now, the biggest thing you're working on, I think, and the most important thing among the many things you've done is mobilizing people to go out and vote Latinos more than anything, because we know that we have the power to affect change. We know that we're the largest minority and we're going to make a difference if we if we actually go out and vote. And another topic of conversation that comes up is we're not a monolith. We're that we just saw in Florida, right? How Cuban Americans think very differently, right? To Puerto Ricans, to Mexicanos. And I so what would you say among the many things you're doing that is the most important focal point for you when thinking about getting Latinos to go out to the polls and actually vote? I think it's the education piece. I think that when people think, especially like, you know, non-Latino folks, whenever they think of Latinos, automatically they put us into a box, right? So right. Um, people often, especially like non-Latinos, often think that I'm Mexican or like whenever they ask me, oh, where are you from? I say Salvador. And they're like, what part of Mexico is that in? Right now, <laughs> no. like, you know, myself. So I think that there's a... Um, challenge uh, that has that we haven't really addressed, and it's that as you know, Latino countries and as like Latinos and Latinx, we come from like different backgrounds and different life experiences that have been impacted by U.S. foreign policy for a really long time. And that everything that we're seeing right now, it's a result of of many years of like our communities attempting to thrive. And that those experiences shape how people vote and how people think about the current political climate. So, for example, when I think of El Salvador, um, a, a country that was, you know, we spent 13, 12 years in civil war, a civil war that was funded by the U.S. A lot of people don't know how U.S. foreign policy has impacted our country's economy. We use dollar, you know, we and, you know, exactly. this whole TPS thing that has happened was a result of, you know, the, the relationship in the right-wing parties of El Salvador with the U.S. Um, a lot of people don't know that MS-13 didn't start in El Salvador. It was a result of, you know, um, violence in Los Angeles, California, and created a massive wave of deportations to a country that was broken, a country that 
was highly impacted and that, you know, years later there were hurricanes, earthquakes, and the whole um, economic infrastructure of the country wasn't set up to, for people to thrive, right? So now, 30, 40 years later, we have, you know, a wave of deportations. We have the criminalizations of Central Americans and like, a lot of people don't get it. When we think of like Venezuela or Nicaragua or Cuba, um, there is this fear uh, that exists in our communities um, that you know the U.S. is going to turn into Cuba and that the U.S. is going to turn into Venezuela because we have been impacted um, by by different policies in our countries. And the only way we can address how people vote and how they make their choices is by having these conversations. Um, and it's it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to talk about. Like even with my community, uh, with my family, um, I had to spend a lot of time talking about you know how racism and fighting anti-blackness and like all these things that we grew up with uh, and that we had to like unlearn. So uh, for me, the biggest component in this election is understanding where we come from, um, but also understanding that. For many years, um, the U.S. has impacted negatively um, our communities, uh, not only in Salvador, but also in Central America and uh, South America as well, and that it has created different political climates that have impacted how we think. How do you hope that this education is going to um, have an effect on our community? Because what you're saying is really interesting and very powerful, I think. And how... I'm a Latino who is educated on that and knows how does that motivate me to go out and vote? And why should I go out and vote knowing these things? Well, I mean, I think voting, it's um, a lot of the times we hear, oh, there's no energy or like, oh, I'm, I, I don't, you know, this candidate or that candidate is not, ener you know, it's not energetic or it's not, right. you know, moving the masses and we should have picked that one and we should have picked this one. And I don't know why this one won and like the, 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 the truth is that we are, if we looked at our daily living, um, our economy is not working for us. Um, it's not working for my mom. It's not working for people in 22 states that are still making $7.25 an hour. It's not working for people, especially immigrants, who, are, who have been left out of all type of policies. Even in the middle of the pandemic, 106 million people didn't have a single paid sick time day. So if you were to get the coronavirus a couple months ago, most likely you would lose your job because you couldn't go to work because your company wouldn't provide that. Um, the truth is that our daily living, a lot of people think like, oh, well, the economy is doing well, we have more jobs. Well, yeah, we have more jobs that are paying $7.25 an hour. Like you can't survive with that, right? So um, the most important thing here is that it's not really about the candidate. It's how we're going to be impacted on a daily basis and that elections are beyond the presidential candidates. Um, our votes matter in our communities, in our legislative, in our boards. Like that's where the change is gonna happen. When we elect in our legislature people who care about schools, who care about the roads that you're driving every day, who care about electricity, who care about you know uh, access to affordable healthcare, who care about all these things, you know, um, that's where the change is gonna begin. But oftentimes, you know, as um, we, we tend to, just center the conversation between uh, apples and oranges. And it's not about that. It's about 
um, all of the things that happen on a daily basis that impact us. When I think of elections, I always tell my neighbors, think about, you know, the school board. Think about who the, the food that your children are eating on their cafeteria. Think about, you know, the roads that you're driving every day, the parks where you take your children to. Like, that's where we see the change um, on a daily basis. What is the most exciting thing about your job? Um, the most exciting thing about my job is that I can, um, I feel that I can spend a lot of time meeting people with different backgrounds um, and building relationships with people that are, you know, amazing and people from the community and that every day I am reminded about the resilience of our communities, especially Latinos and people of color. Um, like for example, during this pandemic, many of like our community members and friends were left without a job and without any benefits. So having to see how, you know, family members trying to thrive through garage sales, through food, trying to put, trying to pay the rent, trying to like, you know, hacer este, como se dice, tandas, este, like claro. all like that's really magical like you cannot like our community is super strong and i'm reminded of that every single day if there's one message you can give to all the latino young voters in these upcoming elections what would you tell them um so i can't vote obviously so i i think that voting Although it is a personal choice and it's, we do it because it's or it's part of like our morale and it's because like, you know, we care about it. A lot of the times uh, voting, it's not really about just one person, it's the whole, the community as a whole. Um, your voting matters. Um, voting now, it's easy, especially as millennials and Gen Z and younger generations. There's many tools, like we have more access to like different languages. There's like so many resources there's so many ways especially you know digital platforms that can help you there's not a an excuse for someone you know to say i'm not gonna vote because i forgot or something like there's so many things out there and we have to honor the work that especially latino younger latino voters we have to honor the sacrifice our parents did for us uh if our parents would have not many you know either brought us here or if our parents would have not dreamed for us we wouldn't be probably living the life we have today. So the least that I can do on my job, even as a non-voter, is to do my best that I can to honor the work that my mom did so that she could give me a better life so that we could be here today. And I think family is important for Latinos, so think about your family. Hey guys, thanks for listening. As you know, a podcast is a journey and I'd love for you to follow this one. So follow Latinikis on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinikis and learn more at wearelatinikis.com.